Good evening, fellow pilgrims, and welcome to this week's class. We have a little music cued that I think you might find familiar, but if you've read the letter, I'd love for you to think a little bit about why this might be appropriate music for this letter. And I'm going to be quiet and let you listen to this and think about these words for a little bit. So any guesses about what that is or where you might have heard it before? That's the name of it right there, Do Not Be Afraid. And the version that we're listening to this evening is from St. Andrew's Cathedral in Sydney, Australia, one of the great Anglican cathedrals. Uh, but you may have heard it before from our own St. Philip's Choir, and it is uh, the music, for those of you on the streaming site, that is the placeholder on our streaming site. But it is a wonderful anthem by Philip Stopford, a pretty recent uh, choral setting, actually. But the text comes from Isaiah 43, and it is a beautiful text that reminds us that God is holding us in the palm of his hand, and because of his love for us, we do not need to be afraid. And one of the themes in tonight's letter will be fear and cowardice and courage and all of those things. So uh, it is a particularly apt anthem for this evening. So as we get ready to jump in to tonight's class, let's begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for these screw tape letters. We thank you for the great wisdom that there is in them about how to live a life that counts for your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would give us your wisdom this evening, that you would bless our time together, and that you would use this time to help us grow in our faith and to grow in our knowledge of and obedience to you. Lord, that we might honor you with this time. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this evening, uh, we will be looking at letter 29. And this is another one of the letters that focuses on the war and the battle. And as we begin each week, uh, let us begin this week also by reciting our scripture verse from Ephesians 6 about the whole armor of God. If you have it in front of you, say it with me. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. It is a great reminder that we are indeed in a battle. And as we've talked before each class, I want to remind you about why the topic of these letters is so important and why we're taking the time to study this book that was written 60 years ago. So the first reason is lessons on understanding the battle that we are in. We are in a battle, a battle between good and evil, between the forces of God and the forces of darkness. And as the letter that we'll read tonight tells us, if we are ignorant and put our heads in the sand, that is a very dangerous place to be spiritually. So this book can help us understand the battle. It can also help us learn to think and think Christianly and develop a Christian worldview. Screwtape shows us how the devil loves to corrupt our thinking. And if we are not careful, even as Christians, we can be lured away into buying into the assumptions of the world, the assumptions that the devil would love for us to take as authoritative. Thirdly, there are plenty of lessons on the psychology of temptation. And the idea here is that if you know the strategy of your enemy, you are much better prepared to withstand his assaults. And here, as we see the way that Satan wants to work on us by looking at Screwtape and his advice to Wormwood, we can be aware of how in our own lives, Satan wants to get in and to undermine our faith. We also want to look at habits to cultivate, to deepen our faith in Christ. There is, throughout this book, a subtext about habits. Those things that we do daily, that become part of who we are, that become part of our existence, and how when those habits are informed by our Christian faith, they can lead us to live a life that is focused on Jesus. And lastly, this book is great for lessons on how to live a boldly Christian life. Not just an ineffectual life that doesn't really matter, but a life where we are radically committed to Jesus and his message, and that through proclaiming that and living that in the power of the Holy Spirit, the world can be changed. 
So as we look at this, we're going to rehearse some of the habits from the last few letters that we've looked at. And as I've said before, part of the reason we do this repetition is that we are uh, all too prone to fall for what we've heard about in the past few letters, which is that horror of the same old thing and the quest for incessant novelty. But the fact of the matter is that habits are learned by repetition. So as we repeat some of these things, I hope that they will bring to remembrance uh, what we've talked about over the past few weeks and help give you a framework for what we'll be talking about tonight. So first from letter 25, the first habit, center your bond of fellowship deeply in your common faith in Jesus Christ. And this is a reminder to us that when we are with our fellow Christians to live into our faith, all too often it is easy to talk about everything else under the world except for our bond in Christ. But as we talk about what we are learning from the Lord, what we may be struggling with, something beautiful that we've seen in the scriptures or in God's creation, we encourage each other and we center our fellowship in that unique bond that Christians have in our common relationship with Jesus Christ. The second habit is beware letting your faith be co-opted by any cause which you embrace. There are all sorts of good causes out there. God's people are called to be about doing justice and loving mercy and all those things. But the problem is that Screwtape knows all too well our tendency to get so involved with a cause that we leave our faith aside and the cause becomes our idol. So it is a reminder to us that our faith must always be the first thing and that we have to be very careful lest our involvement in any cause should make us uh, do something that damages the gospel witness. Thirdly, enjoy the rhythm and predictability of each season and its unique blessings. Screwtape rails about this, about how God has given the seasons and that each one of the seasons of the year is beautiful and has its own joys, and that each season of life from youth through old age has its own unique joys, but that what Screwtape and Wormwood want to focus on is causing us to be discontent with whatever season we're in. Because if we look at the blessings of each season and the joys of each season, uh, we cease to be peevish. We stop complaining. And that complaining is one of the chinks that Satan loves to exploit. So he does not want us to celebrate the joys of each season. The fourth habit from that letter, avoid the horror of the same old thing and reject the incessant quest for novelty. This is so hard for us. Our culture has been built and conditioned by Madison Avenue advertising to never be content with what we've got, that we always need more things, we need a different experience, we need a different this or a different that, and if we finally get whatever that different this or that might be, then we might be happy, at least for a little while. But the problem is that when we buy into this point of view, we leave aside the gifts that God has given us. 
we leave aside even things like scripture and the body of Christ because they've been around for so long that they don't seem fresh. So it's a reminder that we need to find freshness and vigor in our perspective uh, rather than in trying to buy into what the world wants to throw at us as new. Fifthly, be wary of adopting fashions, especially spiritual ones, that may blind you to the true dangers of your time. This is another area where we are all too prone to get all worked up about a cause because it's in the media all the time. And sometimes causes that are in the media are good, but other times they're distraction from other causes that are perhaps even more important, but are being ignored. So as Christians, we are to have our priorities informed by the word of God, not by fashions or the media. And then the sixth habit, resist discarding the wisdom of the past in favor of ideas whose only virtue is that they are new or progressive. There's that great wisdom from Ecclesiastes, one of the oldest books of the Old Testament, that says there is nothing new under the sun. But our culture and the media are always trying to make us think that there's something new, that there's something progressive, and that that is where we really need to focus our attention because those things that are old-fashioned are therefore out of date and anything that isn't brand new couldn't possibly be worth the investment of our time. But the scriptures tell us that the word of God is eternal and that it is built on an ancient and firm foundation and that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And we would do well to learn from the past, to look at wisdom from the past and bring it to bear on the circumstances in which we find ourselves today. And then the habits from letter 26. Be proactive in positive virtue and do not define your faith just in terms of what you don't do. Virtue is something that is very alarming to Screwtape, and we hear a little bit about it in tonight's letter where he's going to remind us that Screwtape and the minions of hell have never been able to create a virtue. But the problem for so many of us is that we are not proactive in virtue. We define our faith by what we don't do. We think if we avoid certain sins that we think of as being particularly bad, that the avoidance of those uh, makes us virtuous. But in fact, the clear mandate of scripture is that love is the most important virtue and the most important command. And that all of the things that we do, no matter how virtuous we may think they are, if we are not loving proactively God and this world and our neighbor, we are failing at being the kind of Christians that Jesus envisioned. Secondly, be wary of defining selfishness in your own terms, judging the selfishness of others, but turning a blind eye towards your own. There's that great uh, quotation that is sometimes attributed to Lewis that he may not actually have said, but the, the sentiment is a good one. The idea that humility is not thinking less of yourself, 
but thinking of yourself less. And that is consonant with the mandate of Scripture, that we are to think of ourselves less, to think of others more, as Romans 12 says, to outdo one another in showing honor to others. And the problem with our unselfishness is that we think that we've got it all figured out. And of course, we're not selfish, but those other people out there, they are the ones that have a problem. And let us just get in their face a little bit and tell them so that they can fix themselves. Well, my friends, this is not scriptural humility, nor is it scriptural unselfishness. And it certainly is not love that focuses on the needs of others first. Third, practice clear and honest communication, speaking the truth in love. This is so very hard. And it's one of the things that Satan has had a heyday with uh, in the past uh, few decades where some Christians are perceived as speaking the truth, but being full of hatred. Other Christians are perceived as being very loving, but they've thrown out scripture and every other kind of truth in the words that they speak. And my friends, the goal for all of us who seek to follow Jesus Christ is to speak the truth, to hold firm to the whole counsel of God, but to speak it with unbelievable love, love and compassion that is just like that of Jesus himself. That speaking the truth in love in that way will change the world. Fourth, beware accumulating grudges. Grudges and bitterness and resentment cause us to be unable to walk in the radical forgiveness that Jesus calls us to. And one of the most beautiful examples of radical forgiveness that we should remember uh, on this day, since it is the anniversary of the Mother Emanuel shootings in our own city, is the radical Christ-like forgiveness that was shown by the family members of those victims of that massacre. And it is a reminder that in that kind of radical forgiveness, there is power. There is gospel power, but holding grudges can lead to more and more hatred, and it is one of those things that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So this idea of not accumulating grudges is one that is so important for us as Christians to hold on to. And the fifth habit from letter 26, practice serving and humble, loving charity without expectation of notice or reward. Christians are called to serve. We are called to be servants, and often the word in scripture is slaves. We don't like that. That sounds like we're being oppressed, but the fact is that service voluntarily chosen is Christ-like. It is like that beautiful passage in Philippians 2 where Jesus is described and Paul talks about how Jesus didn't even count equality as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and coming into our world. My friends, when we empty ourselves of position and rank and power and serve humbly, there is gospel power in that. 
And so letter 27, the first heaven, practice an open and honest prayer life that addresses the real issues in your life. All too often we try to put up a wall and make uh, false appearances and put on masks even when we are talking to God. And it is a reminder that the scriptures tell us to pour out our hearts to the Lord, all of them, the good, the bad, the ugly, and bring all of it to the foot of the cross. The second habit is to contract what Screwtape calls the terrible habit of obedience to God and in prayer and in all of your life. Obedience is anathema to Screwtape and Wormwood. And it is the thing that drives them crazy when habits of obedience are developed. So the more that we contract that habit, the more we will annoy the devil. The third habit is to cultivate an eternal perspective and realize that God sees everything in his unbounded now. It's so important for us to understand that God is the creator of time, and therefore he is outside of time and doesn't operate in our sphere of time. When we try to limit him to our sphere of time, we can get frustrated. So it's a reminder to cultivate that eternal perspective and realize that God is working his purpose out as age rolls into age. Fourth, Avoid embracing the fallacies of the historical point of view and deconstructionism. And this is the idea that Lewis had before it became such a radical current in our culture and the dominant current today in academia, that when you look at an author from any generation but your own, the last question you want to ask is whether what that author has to say is true and whether there's anything you should change in your life as a result. Instead, the idea is to look through all sorts of different lenses at the author and his time and to figure out why he said what he said and why we can disregard it now, why it's not important, that why we need to listen to other voices instead of the voices of the past that used to be considered wisdom. And that is not to say that there isn't value in some of the current voices, but when we have no framework and when we throw out human history and the lessons of it, we become uh, those people living in that dangerous world where history is bunk. And then the next habit, seek proactively to learn from the wisdom of the past, especially Christian wisdom. We need, as believers, to be students of the lives of the saints, of the church fathers, of the early Christians, of those who have sought after Jesus with their whole heart throughout history, because we can learn from them. And we, as Christians, need to learn from their example. Because when we do that, we find not only encouragement, but a reminder that we are part of this amazing body called the church that includes all of the saints who have gone before us, who are cheering us on as that great cloud of witnesses as we seek to follow Jesus today. And then from last week's letter, letter 28, daily increase in conscious dependence upon God, not upon worldly hopes. This is a reminder not to pin all of our hopes 
on the things of this world, on this job or this relationship or this thing or that thing or money or whatever it might be because we need to depend on God. He created us to live in daily dependence on him. And one of the great things in the book, The Common Rule, that we've talked about is the suggestion of kneeling in prayer three times a day, at the beginning of the day, at noonday, and before we go to bed, just as a physical reminder that we're kneeling before God, that we're dependent on him. Second, fight against drabness in and resentment at your situation in life. Satan loves to make us discontent. And if we can spend all our time thinking about how bad our current situation is or how boring it is or how unexciting it is and how it needs to be this way or that way or couldn't it be like it used to be or could it be this way in the future if we work hard enough for it, what we will do is we'll throw out the time that we've been given and we will waste it in being discontent. Thirdly, be on guard against your heart being too knitted to this world instead of to your true homeland. Screwtape wants us to think that this world is all there is. It's that old beer commercial, you only go round once in life, so grab for all the gusto you can get. He doesn't want us, Satan doesn't want us to remember that we are made for eternity, that we are made for fellowship with God, that we are made for the new heaven and the new earth and eternal life, and that is our true homeland. But Wormwood and Screwtape want us to get so caught up in this world that all of our energy, all of everything that we think about is consumed with this world because then there'll be nothing left over to invest in our eternal life and in the kingdom of God. Fourthly, make time for music and poetry and literature that can point you toward the unseen realities and God's kingdom. Screwtape rails against this. He says that music and poetry and literature or beauty can completely undo years of work on the part of Screwtape and Satan's tempters because that fresh wind blows into the soul of the patient. And when we see through the beauty of myth or fantasy or creation or literature or poetry or music, we see the beauty of the kingdom of God. It makes us have the scales drop from our eyes and we can see clearly about what really matters. And that scares Screwtape to death. Fifth, beware of the illusion that politics or policies or any human progress can make heaven on earth. Screwtape is all about trying to get us to think that if we just work harder or we get better politicians or we get a better educational system, that suddenly this world will become heaven. And that because this world is so like heaven, all of our energy can be invested here. And we forget all about worshiping God. We forget about our eternal home in Christ. We forget about the kingdom of the Lord and its beauty. And this is such a seductive thing. And it is right in front of us um, in this election season that we get all too caught up in thinking that if we just get the right people in office, everything is going to be fine. 
And we need to be reminded of the truth of the scriptures that men are sinful, that creation is broken, that we are dead. We're not just broken, we're dead. We are dead in our trespasses and our sins, and the only hope is in Jesus Christ. Sure, we can hope that things get better. We can do what we can in our little corner of the world to try to make things better. But we have to do that in the perspective that God's kingdom is the only thing that can solve the problem of sin and hatred and division. And sixth, cultivate an understanding of safety that has more to do with being in the will of God than with your own personal comfort. You'll remember Screwtape rails about Wormwood sort of hoping that the patient would die in the war because Screwtape says that is a disaster of the first magnitude because if a Christian dies, he goes to be with Jesus. Screwtape says, guard him as the apple of your eye. Guard his life because the longer he's alive, the longer you have to tempt him away from the kingdom of God. It is a great reminder that safety and comfort are often enemies of the kingdom of God, that when we are living in such a way that we have to live boldly for Christ and we're depending on him alone, that is the time when our faith grows and when we make an impact for the kingdom of God. So that brings us to letter 29. I would encourage you to get your books out, open up to that letter, get your highlighters ready, and we will jump in. Here we go. My dear Wormwood, now that it is certain that the German humans will bombard your patient's own town and that his duties will keep him in the thick of the danger, we must consider our policy. Are we to aim at cowardice or at courage with consequent pride or at hatred of the Germans? Now, well, I am afraid it is no good trying to make him brave. Our research department has not yet discovered, though success is hourly expected, how to produce any virtue. This is a serious handicap. To be greatly and effectively wicked, a man needs some virtue. What would Attila have been without his courage, or Shylock without self-denial as regards the flesh? But as we cannot simply supply those qualities ourselves, we can only use them as supplied by the enemy. And this means leaving him a kind of foothold in those men whom otherwise we would have made most securely our own. A very unsatisfactory arrangement. But I trust one day we shall learn to do better. Hatred we can manage. The tension of human nerves during noise, danger, and fatigue makes them prone to any violent emotion, and it is only a question of guiding the susceptibility into the right channels. If conscience resists, muddle him. Let him say that he feels hatred, not on his own behalf, but on that of the women and the children, and that a Christian is told to forgive his own, not other people's, enemies, 
In other words, let him consider himself sufficiently identified with the women and the children to feel hatred on their behalf, but not sufficiently identified to regard their enemies as his own and therefore proper objects of forgiveness. But hatred is best combined with fear. Cowardice, alone of all the vices, is purely painful, horrible to anticipate, horrible to feel, horrible to remember. Hatred has its pleasures. It is therefore often the compensation by which a frightened man reimburses himself for the miseries of fear. The more he fears, the more he will hate. And hatred is also a great anodyne for shame. To make a deep wound in his charity, you should therefore first defeat his courage. Now this is a ticklish business. We have made men proud of most vices, but not of cowardice. Whenever we have almost succeeded in doing so, the enemy permits a war or an earthquake or some other calamity, and at once courage becomes so obviously lovely and important that even in human eyes, all our work is undone. And there is still at least one vice of which they feel genuine shame. The danger of inducing cowardice in our patients, therefore, is lest we produce real self-knowledge and self-loathing with consequent repentance and humility. And, in fact, in the last war, thousands of humans, by discovering their own cowardice, discovered the whole moral world for the first time. In peace, we can make many of them ignore good and evil entirely. In danger, the issue is forced upon them in a guise to which even we cannot blind them. There is here a cruel dilemma before us. If we promoted justice and charity among men, we should be playing directly into the enemy's hands. But, if we guide them to the opposite behavior, this sooner or later produces, for he permits it to produce, a war or a revolution, and the undisguisable issue of cowardice or courage awakes thousands of men from moral stupor. This, indeed, is probably one of the enemy's motives for creating a dangerous world a world in which moral issues really come to the point. He sees, as well as you do, that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. A chastity or honesty or mercy which yields to danger will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. Pilate was merciful until it became risky. It is therefore possible to lose as much as we gain by making your man a coward. He may learn too much about himself. 
There is always the chance, of course, not of chloroforming the shame, but of aggravating it and producing despair. This would be a great triumph. It would show that he had believed in and accepted the enemy's forgiveness of his other sins, not only because he himself did not fully feel their sinfulness, that in respect of the one vice which he really understands in its full depth of dishonor, he cannot seek nor credit the mercy. But I fear you have already let him get too far in the enemy's school, and he knows that despair is a greater sin than any of the sins which provoke it. As to the actual technique of temptations to cowardice, not much need be said. The main point is that precautions have a tendency to increase fear. The precautions publicly enjoined on your patient, however, soon become a matter of routine, and this effect disappears. What you must do is to keep running in his mind, side by side with the conscious intention of doing his duty, the vague idea of all sorts of things he can do or not do, inside the framework of the duty, which seemed to make him a little safer. If A happened, get his mind off the simple rule, I've got to stay here and do so-and-so, into a series of imaginary lifelines. If A happened, though I very much hope it won't, I could do B. And if the worst came to the worst, I could always do C. Superstitions, if not recognized as such, can be awakened. The point is to keep him feeling that he has something other than the enemy and the courage the enemy supplies, to fall back on. So that what was intended to be a total commitment to duty becomes honeycombed all through with little unconscious reservations. By building up a series of imaginary expedients to prevent the worst coming to the worst, you may produce at that level of his will, which he is not aware, a determination that the worst shall not come to the worst. Then, at the moment of the real terror, rush it out into his nerves and muscles, and you may get the fatal act done before he knows what you're about. For remember, the act of cowardice is all that matters. The emotion of fear is, in itself, no sin, and though we enjoy it, does us no good. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Well, there's a lot of great stuff in this letter tonight, and I commend it to your rereading and reflection, particularly that paragraph about the courage being the chief virtue and the form of every virtue at its testing point. More about that in a minute. So, the habits to annoy the devil from this letter. First, be on guard against developing any type of hatred, including hatred on behalf of others. Hatred is one of those things that it is all too easy to let infect our lives. And the scriptures are very clear about this, that hatred is not a thing that Christians should embrace. 
Hatred of injustice is a quality that is part of who God is. But what we want to do is take the hatred of injustice and turn it toward hatred of those people whom we think are unjust. And that is just what Satan would love for us to do. Listen to these words from Scripture from 1 John 2. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Hate will blind you. Then, from Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. My friends, this is so important. Christianity is the only faith that tells its adherents to love their enemies. It is radical in the first degree. It was what was so radical after the Mother Emanuel shootings, and that is why there was a power of love unleashed by those saints of those families who forgave the man who had killed their family members. My friends, we need to reject hatred and practice love to pray for our enemies and seek to love those who persecute us. The second habit, be wary of unresolved fear and shame and how they can lead to hatred. We are called on to practice short accounts, to be mindful of where we have fallen short and to lay our souls bare at the foot of the cross in prayer every day. Because then, when we can confess our fears and confess our shame, we can be forgiven by God and we can cast those cares on him. But when we harbor fear and we harbor shame and we harbor resentment, it is all too easy for those things to build up into hatred that we feel justified about toward others. Listen to this word from 1 John again. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And then from 2 Corinthians 7. For godly grief produces a a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This is such an important word that guilt and so on should be pointing us toward repentance. And the repentance should point us toward the cross and Jesus' forgiveness where we cast that away. But the problem is that so many of us hold on to guilt and shame and it turns to death and hatred. Then this great verse from James. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? This is such a great reminder that the quarrels and fighting and hatred that come among us don't come from following the gospel of Jesus Christ. They come from our own passions. And when we seek to do things in the world's way, we will have violence and death and hatred and all of those things, many of which we are seeing playing out in our society right now. But what we need to do instead is to lean into the love of the kingdom of God, into forgiveness, into radical repentance, because it is only there that hope is found, the hope, the strong hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the third habit, be prayerfully alert to the forces of good and evil at work in your life and in the world, rather than being ignorant. My friends, the scriptures are full of stories of those who were ignorant of the times and missing what was playing out in front of them. You can remember way back in the story of Noah, the people just going about their business, not aware of the evil in the world or caring about it, or those apocalyptic predictions in Jesus's gospel of people going on with day-to-day -day life and missing the signs that are around them or Jesus talking about the fig tree and pointing us to be aware of what is going on around us. Not to be afraid because of what is going on around us, but to be looking for where the activity of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God is happening. Listen to these words from Ephesians 4. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. My friends, ignorance and hardness of heart can alienate us from being able to see and live into the kingdom of God. And then this from Proverbs, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. We must be alert. And then from Romans, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. My friends, it is all too easy for this to happen when we stop considering that there's right and wrong, that there's evil and good, that there's the kingdom of God, and there's the kingdom of darkness. When we begin to say that they're all the same, it is the beginning of the end. Our hearts are hardened. We cannot see clearly the eye, which is the lamp of our body, is dark, as Jesus said, and therefore the darkness within will be doubly dark. 
We must be alert. We must ask the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom that we may see with the eyes and the perspective of the kingdom of God. The fourth habit, understand and practice the true virtue of courage. Remember, Screwtape is very upset because the workshops of Satan have been unable to produce even a single virtue in the same way they've been unable to produce even a single pleasure. But Screwtape is particularly alarmed about courage because he realizes that courage, when practiced by Christians, can begin to bring the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit into this world, and that scares Screwtape to death. Remember, Lewis says uh, through Screwtape that courage is the chief of the virtues because, because it is the form of every virtue at the testing point. And what he means by that is that it is the thing that enables us when practicing any virtue, whether it's mercy or kindness or compassion or giving radically, whatever it might be, courage is what pushes us over the brink to actually engage in the action. It is the thing that gets us out of just feeling a certain way into acting which we've heard about from Screwtape before, that he wants to keep us feeling all the time and never acting. So courage is unbelievably important. It is something that desperately needs to be recovered by the church today, where we are all too prone to want to keep our heads down and stay out of other people's way and not cause any fuss. But sometimes Christians need to be courageous. And this is certainly a culture that needs courageous voices of Christians. Listen to this from the word of God, Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. This is a great verse to memorize if you haven't. It is a reminder that God commands us to be courageous and that he does not want us to be afraid or discouraged because he is with us. It is not because of ourselves, our own power, that we're not afraid. It is because God himself is with us. Then from 1 Corinthians 16, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. This sounds like our opening verse from Ephesians, all of that about standing, which is equivalent with courage. Standing is the opposite of running away in fear. And here we are told to be on our guard, to stand firm in our faith, not in our own strength. It's just like in the old hymn, it says, be strong in Jesus and stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you you dare not trust your own, put on the gospel armor and watching unto prayer where duty calls or danger be never wanting there. It is a reminder that Jesus is the one that gives us strength. And then lastly from Psalm 27, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. 
We're not to rush out willy-nilly in our own strength, but we are to wait on the Lord and his timing and his provision. And then the fifth habit, understand despair as a serious sin and avoid being seduced by it. My friends, this is part of the disease of our culture and the disease of the church. And I do not mean here to belittle the physical sickness of depression, but what I mean here is despair, where Christians who claim to believe the gospel have given up hope. Scripture tells us that we are never to despair because God is with us. And in God's kingdom, there is always, always hope. It is something Satan wants to do. He wants to seduce us to despair. Because if you can get a Christian to despair and to focus all the time on poor, poor, pitiful me, isn't it so awful? Let me play my little pity violin song for you. That person is certainly not going to attract anyone else to the Christian faith, and he or she will be immobilized from making any difference for the kingdom of God. Listen to these words from the beginning of Psalm 73. If you don't know Psalm 73, I would commend for you to mark that in your Bible. If you um, have times where you're discouraged and think you're sliding toward despair, this is a great psalm to read. Listen to these words. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. All too often, my friends, we see evil appearing to prosper and we begin to despair and we think, well, what about me? Here I've tried to live a Christian life and what did it get me? And Satan loves for us to do that. So let's annoy the devil by not giving in. And then second from 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And the key there is in that persecuted, but not forsaken, because the Lord says he will never leave us or forsake us. And because he is with us, we can never give in to despair. And then this beautiful passage from Isaiah 61, that promise of the Lord to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of gladness for mourning, the garment of praise for a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then lastly, habit six, live in the confidence that your ultimate safety is in Christ alone, not in building a foolproof network of precautions. Now, precautions can be a good thing, but if you rely on those to protect your life and think that they are the be-all and end-all, you have fallen into Satan's trap. We have to remember that our safety is in as Christians, is not in this mortal life, but in the fact that we belong to Jesus and our names are written in the book of life. Listen to these words of scripture from the Psalm, Psalm 4. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep, 
For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And then Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. There it is again, stand. Stand upright because our safety and confidence are in Christ. And then as Jesus prayed in that great high priestly prayer in John 17, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That is a great reminder that Jesus guards us and he guards us through his word and that he protects us. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So I commend to you this letter and these habits and the fact that courage is such an important virtue. Courage for the Christian is the thing that enables us to lead boldly Christian life to follow Jesus, who set his face as a flint toward Jerusalem and the cross, who, as Hebrews tells us, set his face toward the cross, despising the shame, but for the joy set before him, endured the cross, and ended up fulfilling God's will, seated at the right hand of God. That is a beautiful reminder to us that Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, the courageous one whose example should inspire us all. And as we close tonight, let us remember that quotation about obedience from Screwtape Letter 8. Our cause is never more in danger, Wormwood, than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do the enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let's close with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we confess to you how often we are so concerned about our own safety and about keeping our head down and not causing trouble that we fail to practice the virtue of courage. Lord, we pray you would remind us of those words in the book of Joshua that you spoke to Joshua, your servant, to encourage him. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Lord, I pray that you would remind us all that you are with us that you are Emmanuel, God with us, and that through that no power can snatch us from your hand. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live out the truth of your word, that your kingdom might break out, and that people would be drawn to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. I pray that you will have a wonderful week of considering what it means to live in such a way that you annoy the devil. 
Let us go further up and further in, and God bless you.